This I recall to mind and therefore have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. Thou wilt keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because He trusteth in thee. Cast thy burden upon the Lord and He shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight thyself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Cast thy burden upon the Lord. Trust also in Him and He will bring it to pass. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship, filled with the Holy Spirit, ready to study God's Word. A few moments of silent prayer so that you can confess your sins privately to God the Father, if necessary, and then we'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You that we have the privilege to come before Your throne of grace this evening, that we have Your Word to study, that we have this Your Holy Spirit who indwells us, who fills us, who teaches us, who guides and directs us, who brings Your doctrine back to our mind uh, so that we can utilize it at the proper time. Father, we pray now as we study Your Word that You would help us to understand the things that we are studying, that we would be encouraged that we would be challenged by them, and that we would realize what a fantastic salvation we have, and that you are indeed the Lord of the universe, and you have saved us. We are part of your royal family, and you have a specific plan for each one of us. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before we get started in our study, I'm going to give you a little report from... uh, the last couple of days, I went down to Dallas about 10 years ago, really more than that, going back about 14 years ago. Tommy Ice and I, at the time Tommy was pastoring a church in Austin, Texas. I was pastoring a church in Dallas, Irving, a suburb of Dallas. And we sat around and we were watching what was happening, especially with regard to dispensational studies at the scholarly academic le- uh, level in the seminaries. I had a had taken a uh, Ph.D. course in uh, dispensational studies. was very concerned with some of the things that was beginning to be taught at Dallas Seminary. And there were a number of other people at that time, and we began to pray that God would make funds available or something happen so that we could establish what we thought was needed, which was a dispensational think tank, a place, an organization where people committed to dispensational truth could work together, share ideas, uh, do intensive, detailed academic study on crucial issues related to dispensationalism as well as to eschatology and prophecy. By 1991, that came into being in something that's called the Pre-Tribulation Rapture Study Group. Tommy is the executive director. I think the founding director is Tim LaHaye. Tim LaHaye and... Uh, another man who is a professional writer named Jerry Jenkins, who used to be the editor with Moody Monthly, have been writing a series of books called the Left Behind series, which is a fictional account of what happens to a group of people on the earth after the rapture. And that goes on for a while. And I uh, had the privilege the other night, Monday night, I went out to dinner with John Walvoord and his wife, the chancellor of Dallas Seminary. Tommy Ice and his wife, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. So it's quite an interesting evening. And uh, anyway, this pre-trib rapture study group got started nine years ago, and I was one of the ones, of course, instrumental and behind the scenes getting everything going. And then because of different things that had taken place and where the Lord was taking me, I haven't been able to attend. So this was my first year to be there. My name's been on the letterhead. I'm sure people there wondered, who is this guy? <laughs> well, they found out. And it was great to be there. I ran into, I was introducing myself. We had to introduce ourselves. We went through the first day. And the guy who was sitting behind me was a guy named Bob Gramacki. And I read a couple of books he wrote back in the early 70s. And he had a young student, 20. 
seven years ago, who he wanted to go into seminary. And that young student's name is Dan Ingram. Just to bring, you know, this is, it's a small world sometimes, isn't it? And so I was pleased to tell him that his, uh, his plans for Dan were coming to fruition some 26 years later. And uh, anyway, so we had, a, it was a good, good conference. This conference has been going on, and guys come, and they have done a lot of detailed work on particular topics. Arnold Fruchtenbaum was there. Um, Arnold went to seminary with George Meisinger with Charlie Clough, who most of you know. And uh, George, uh, Arnold has a fa- you know, I could go talk about Arnold for a while. His, uh, his family was Jewish. His ancestors in the late 1700s founded the Hasidim, the Hasidic Jews. And his, he was born just prior to the start of World War I. I mean, he was an infant, 1939, in Poland, and Jewish, which is not the place to be. So they evacuated east. His father was arrested by the Russian army as a German spy. They were deported to Siberia, and then they escaped from Siberia after the end of the war, came to America, and they lived in New York. And uh, somebody with the American Board of Missions to the Jews got to Arnie with the gospel. And his knowledge of the Old Testament, of rabbinic theology, Jewish theology, is encyclopedic. He's just incredible. And I got him locked down to come and do a conference for us. First available date... March 15th, 2002. <laughs> and to make sure, get him on the calendar. Those of you who might be worried, I'll be here at least that long. But it was a, he, he gave a tremendous talk on the temple. Randy Price was there. I'm trying to lock Randy down on coming. And Randy just, just some fantastic stuff on, uh, on the new temple, the temp, uh, or the tribulation temple, what's going on in, in Israel. A guy by the name of, um, see if I can remember how to pronounce it. Um, it escapes me right now, but he's teaching Greek now at Schaefer Seminary. And this guy did a phenomenal job of research on an extremely technical and detailed Greek point on the, on the um, conjunctions in Romans. I mean, Revelation 3, 9, and 10 took him an hour to go through it. Tremendous statistical data. Not too many people have the time, the dedication, the uh, fortitude to go through that level of detailed study necessary to simply repunctuate the text and get it correct. So this is the kind of work that was being done there, and it was, it was exciting to be there. The two or three conferences I've been to where I've gone to pick up to, more for myself just to uh, be encouraged and be challenged in my study. I came away thinking that I really need to start studying the Word because I, 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 I hate going to these things because I come back thinking I'm really biblically ignorant. Now, you can extrapolate that for your own life. <laughs> last uh, night before last, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins sp- talked about their book, and before I s- make my comment, I was reminded about because I've read a little bit about what's in their Left Behind series, and I know some of you have read that. I was reminded of what another man, I won't mention his name, because it was said in private at a private conversation, and he was commenting about how Lindsay's book, Late Great Planet Earth, which is now, now has sold around 35 million copies in I don't know how many languages. And almost every church I've been in, including this one, there's somebody who came to know the Lord because they read Late Great Planet Earth. And this very well-known former president, it wasn't John Walbert, former president of a, of a seminary said, I don't really agree with some of the things that Hal said. I don't like some of his interpretations, but obviously God does. Because thousands upon thousands of people, I had five different couples in a church of this size in Dallas that had all trusted the Lord by picking up late great planet Earth and reading it. Well, the same thing can be said about this new Left Behind series that Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins are, are putting out. I'm not sure that I, 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 I think they've got the gospel a little fuzzy in places. Um, but God is obviously using it. Thank God the Holy Spirit is a sovereign executive in salvation. And that even though we may muddy the water a little bit, make things a little fuzzy, and misuse Revelation 3.20 and invite Jesus into our heart, um, or pray that prayer, God... 
overrides that in his grace and knows that people are, in fact, trusting. See, you don't have to pray a prayer of faith to be saved. Scripture says believe. It doesn't say pray a prayer of faith. It says believe. So you can believe Christ died on your cross and then pray a silly prayer, and you'll still be saved. And um, they have done an excellent job. The stories that they told, the letters they read about the numbers of people. There was one man there who had gone to Dallas Seminary in the 80s. He's been praying for his family, his sister, his mother, his father, to come to know the Lord. And they just think he's the black sheep. How did this guy, he's caught in some kind of religious thing. He's gone to seminary. Now he's a missionary in Europe. And his sister called him a couple of months ago and said, is there really something in the Bible called the rapture? Of course, he got a chance to say, yeah, and talk to her a little bit more about the gospel. And his uh, family has read it. They're curious. They live in Woodstock, Connecticut. (laughs) So when he found out where I was from, he made a beeline to come talk to me. So they may show up one day. You never know. But it's just fascinating. So if any of you have people that you have witnessed to, that you have... uh, have been frustrated witnessing to family members, whatever, you might want to get them a copy of that uh, if they read to uh, as, as just a way. God uses things like that. Sometimes you can give people a track. You can give them all kinds of things. But I'm convinced that the Lord uses prophecy to bring people to himself in salvation because in prophecy people realize there is going to be a reckoning. I always remember the... Um, very famous sermon that was uh, preached back a hundred years ago. They used to print out and pass around people's sermons, and it was called Payday Someday. And people, when they recognize that there eventually will be a judgment and accountability, come face to face with their own, own mortality, then they are very responsive to the gospel. So, uh, I think that that, that might, I don't endorse a whole lot of books. Usually I can give them a ringing endorsement, but on something like this, I say, well, it might be a good idea. The Lord uses these things and obviously is, and I think that some, some good things are coming from it. But it was exciting. It was on the negative side. It was sad to hear about some things that are being taught in traditionally sound dispensational institutions today. And it was encouraging to see how God is still raising up men who are committed to dispensational truth, who are committed to the literal, consistent, literal interpretation of the Bible in every area, including prophecy. And uh, so it's good for me because I'm looking forward to the fact that sometime in the next six months we're going to finish James. And we will start a study of Daniel. And that will bring a lot of eschatology to bear. So, with that, let's open our Bibles to James chapter 4, verse 6. James 4, 6. There are ten imperatives in these four verses from James 4, 7 through 10. That's where we are. James 4, 7 through 10. We are studying the first two mandates in verse 7, which are related syntactically in the text. It doesn't come across in the English translation, but in the Greek it reads, Therefore submit to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. And that connection shows that these are flip sides of the same coin. As we submit to God and His authority at the beginning point when we're in carnality, then uh, that is part of resisting the devil. This is the basic command. Now, he's going to go on to the next stage in verse 8, which has to do with confession of sin and rebound, but we need to spend a lot of time understanding principles related to spiritual warfare and resisting the devil. And we have talked about the origin of Satan, the origin of evil. We have talked about the beginnings of the angelic conflict, the development of the angelic conflict, and we last time we talked about the subject of demon possession. And the study of demon possession, just a quick review to make sure we lock it in your minds. There are six key words. The first three words 
Well, I have one announcement here. I was going to use this. I forgot to make this announcement. North Stonington Bible Church has invited us to join them at 6 p.m. Sunday evening for their annual Christmas musical. Okay. Three Greek words used in the text. Now, in Luke 8 and the parallel passages in Matthew and Mark, where we see the episode with the Gadarene demoniac, and in Matthew records that they were two, these three words are used. We studied this last time. One passage uses diamonizomai, another passage uses echodimon, and another passage uses enumiti akatharto, which means to have an unclean spirit. Now, these phrases are all, in some sense, vague. Diamonizomai could be translated, and some people suggest this, simply to be acted upon by a demon. That can be anything from a very light, limited demon influence to internal dwelling by a demon in terms of demon possession, which is what they suggest. And this is a very popular teaching today that you really can, Christians can be demon-possessed. And they argue that really demon possession isn't even the right term. Some people want to make demon possession mean ownership. And they do a real sleight of hand with the text. They'll say, well, you can't, as a believer, you can't be owned by Satan, but you can be indwelt by Satan. And just really, nobody really takes the time to examine the details of the text of Scripture. Diamonizomai means to be acted upon by a demon. But if you look at the example in the text, you determine how he is acted upon by a demon. Because this word is used in Matthew, echodimon is used in Mark, and in Numiti Akatharto is used in Luke. We know that these are synonymous phrases. Now, the way we gain insight into what these words mean is by looking at what happens when Jesus casts out the demons. There are two more words used. He commands the demon to depart. It says he casts out the demon, ekbalo, which is a compound word made up of the preposition ek and the verb balo, which means to throw. It comes to mean cast out. In order to cast out a demon, the demon must be inside. It says then in the text that the demons left, the demons departed, and uses the word ex erkomai, another compound word from the preposition ek, plus the verb erkomai, which means to come, go, to, to enter. Ex erkomai, come or go, and when you use, use it with the preposition ex, it means to come or go out. Out, the, the, the key here is to understand these prepositions, in and out. The two words for going out are cast out and to leave or depart. And then the sixth word is the major key word. It's ace erkomai, which is a compound of the preposition ace, which means in or into or toward, plus the verb erkomai, which means to come or go, to come into, to go into, to enter, to move into. And it is used this way in Luke 8.30, for many demons had entered into him. And then later it says that these demons, ace erkamai, they entered into the pigs, the swine. So we learn from this that diamonizomai doesn't mean simply to be acted upon by a demon, but it means for a demon or many demons to actually enter into the physical body of a person and to take over or control it. Now that doesn't mean that they destroy the individual's identity. That individual is still there and can still exercise volition at least towards both God consciousness and the gospel. Can't do anything physically when the demon controls the body. But that individual can, is still there, still knows what's going on, is just unable, is just shut down in terms of interaction by the demon. Now the question then becomes, can a Christian be demon-possessed? This is taught so much today, there's so much heresy going on in the church today, and you ought to just fall on your knees and be thankful every single day living in this part of the country that there's no Christian television and no Christian radio here. One of the men that was here showed several videos one night. Uh, he's got a ministry where, he, in fact, he's, he's a Pentecostal from North Carolina. Pentecostals in North Carolina are Pentecostals. Got to pronounce all those syllables. And he's a great guy. He's a five point Arminian. 
For those of you who don't know what that means, that means that you believe man does everything, God hardly does anything, and man can lose his salvation. And I have three friends, three, three very good friends. One is a pastor who ordained me. Two other guys I've known for 25 years, and they're all five-point Calvinists. Five years ago, this Pentecostal pastor from South Carolina was assigned to room with the other <laughs> with the three five-point Calvinists, and they just had a wonderful time together. I'd have loved to have been a fly on that wall. But he had these videos of a number of these guys who were on the Trinity Broadcasting Network, Benny Hinn and several others. And I, I, I can't watch that stuff for very long, but I was just appalled, absolutely appalled at the heresy that is being taught today and going out in the guise of Christianity. And we just ought to be thankful. We, we've got enough problems up here. We don't need that on top of it. But in many of these, these, especially in charismatic circles, they emphasize deliverance and everything has a problem because you've got a, a spirit of uh, anger or gossip or gluttony or alcoholism. It's not your responsibility or problem. It's because you have a demon. They just don't have a very profound theology of sin. Their homardiology uh, is very limited, and they really think that if you're a Christian, somehow it's going to be easy, and that somehow your sin nature has been eradicated to some degree, so it's not as powerful, wicked, or evil as it was before you were saved. So if you're doing these heinous things, you still have problems with smoking, drinking, dancing, and going with girls that do, then uh, you must have a demon. So, I mean, it's just the superficiality of the thought is just appalling. And so many people are teaching this, even uh, uh, faculty members at places like Moody Bible Institute and Biola, which are not Pentecostal. But I think in my study, what I have seen happen is that back in the 60s, you had a strong demarcation between Bible churches on the one hand and the large Bible church movement And on the other hand, you had the Pentecostal charismatic movement. And there are three bridges that went across this chasm. The first bridge is the sign gifts. Now what happened here is that Bible church people, because of their understanding of the Scriptures and their sound exegetical theology, rejected that. Second bridge is spiritual warfare issues. The third bridge is music. And all of this contemporary Christian chorus, I won't be alliterative, stuff, came out of a place in Southern California. Today it's much more biblically oriented than it was in the late 60s called Calvary Chapel. And they produced a group called Maranatha. And their label, their music label, was Maranatha Music. And at the beginning, these guys were just saved two or three weeks off the, off of the, the street corners in Berkeley and Haight-Asbury, where they'd been popping acid and smoking dope and and uh, tripping out on everything. And then they got saved and they got filled with the Holy Ghost and blessed by Jesus. And then they started singing new Christian music, but they were just taking little ditties and putting them to rock music, not understanding that... But, and, and I'm amazed how many musicians don't understand this, that music is built on a philosophy. All art, whether it's a visual art or performing art or written art, all art is built upon a perception of reality. It is a, a way the artist expresses himself in his own view of reality. And music is no exception. And so whether you're talking about opera, whether you're talking about Beethoven or Mozart, whether you're talking about the Rolling Stones or you're talking about Johnny Cash, all music reflects certain fundamental assumptions about how the musician, I'm not even talking about the words, how the musician views reality. And so they were using a music that basically was an expression of existential secularism as a means to communicating the Word. So they were combining, and because I'm a very gracious person, I will assume that their lyrics were doctrinal, 
They were wedding doctrine with a anti-doctrine, human viewpoint method and means, which is the music, and that always produces problems. And what happened is that all the baby boomers just fell in love with the Jesus Freak music. You know, I loved it back then. In fact, it drove Pam nuts because she grew up out of the country and didn't know this, but back at that time I was listening to Jesus music. Tommy was listening to Jesus music. And you remember when Tommy was here, and you know Tommy can be a little hyper. Well, we made the mistake of giving him ice cream before we took him to the airport. And he's, he's a diabetic, and he was just bouncing. And he and I were singing Jesus Freak songs all the way to the airport, you know, the old Larry Norman stuff. And n- nobody would believe that about us. But, you know, we, we lived through that. And I always say that when I talk about music because so many people get the idea that I'm just some kind of a, of a cultural throwback to, to some Neanderthal period musically, and I somehow... <laughs> managed to escape all of the influence of rock and roll and everything else in my generation. And I didn't. I I mean, when I'm at home and I like to listen to the old 50s and 60s stuff and all kinds of different music, but when it comes to worship and what we have in the church, we have a different standard. And that standard must flow from the Word of God and doctrine must control our presuppositions not only about the words we sing, but the music we sing. And what happened was that the whole charismatic, which is nothing more than an existential approach to Christianity, that whole philosophy was carried through the Trojan horse of Jesus freak music called contemporary chorus music today and came into the non-charismatic Bible church movement where it spread like an infection. And by the middle to late 60s, They were starting to buy into the spiritual warfare concepts that also came out of the charismatic camp. You were wondering how all this tied together, weren't you? And that's where it came from. And now, so many places buy into concepts of spiritual warfare. They don't know where it came from, but it came out of the experience-oriented theology of demonism that came out of the, the Pentecostal charismatic movement. And what this does is it opens them up more and more to the fact that the sign gifts continue and what I have seen happen over the last uh, ten years is amazing in terms of previously sound men who, who have become open and believe that the sign gifts like tongues continue. And it, it all involves a, a breakdown in their understanding of the absolutes. So this is how Satan influences us many, many different ways. We talked about demon influence being the invasion of doctrines of demons, false thinking in James 3. Uh, James 3.15 says that wisdom that is not divine viewpoint wisdom, the wisdom is not, this wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but it is earthly, natural, and demonic. Now that is a crucial verse. Because in that verse, God says all types of thinking, every philosophy, every religious system, every philosophical system, every manner of thinking about reality that is not grounded from presupposition to conclusion on the Word of God is demonic. Period. It's not just man's opinion. It is demonic. It reflects the whole orientation of the cosmic system. And what has happened is we have bought into this and we've bought into this experience-oriented position and so we run around talking about how Christians can be demon-possessed, motivating them with all kinds of, of uh, stories that put fear into people and they're scared and, oh, it must be a demon because I had this happen, I had that happen, and it, it, it's absolutely tragic. So we want to look at this and what does the Scripture say about a Christian being demon-possessed. Point number one, as background, when Christ died on the cross... This is the focal point of the angelic conflict. Sunday morning when I went through that long, detailed, point-by-point analysis on why Judas Iscariot was not a believer and why he was demon-possessed, and I analyzed Ace Erechimai and all of its uses in, the, in, the, uh, in classical Greek where it always means to enter in. It's the same. And I analyzed the structure of the verse grammatically in 
John 13.27 and showed that it was identical to Luke 8.30, that just as the demons entered into him, the demoniac, so the same structure, Satan entered Judas. We have to realize that this is the focal point of all history, the focal point of the angelic conflict. Everything that Satan is betting his eternal existence on is riding on the cross. He's not going to sit back and just try to influence somebody. He takes over Judas specifically because this is where everything in all of history is focused, is on the cross. And it is on the cross where Satan and all the demons are defeated for all time and eternity. Colossians 2, 10 through 15. Let's look at that. Turn over to Colossians 2. I want to point out some of these verses as we go through so you will see how to use them. In Colossians 2, 10 through 15, we read, let's pick up the beginning of the sentence in verse 9, for in Him, that is in Christ, all the fullness of deity, doctrine of the undiminished deity and hypostatic union, for in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in Him you have been made complete, And He is the head over all rule and authority. Now these words, rule and authority, are terms that refer to the hierarchy of authority in angelic creation, whether it is fallen angel or holy angel. And so when this says that Jesus is the head, that is talking about authority over, He is the ruler over all angelic authorities, whether they are demonic or whether they are holy angels. And it is in Him, at the point of salvation, when you are baptized by means of God the Holy Spirit, you are identified at that instant with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection, and you are placed in Christ. And at that moment, everything that is Christ's is ours. Everything. We are not bastard children to be left out on the doorstep when we're disobedient to be exposed to demon or satanic possession. In Him you have been made complete, and He is the head over all rule and authority. In Him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. This is the the cutting of the sin nature. Romans chapter 6. Because of positional truth, our slavery to the sin nature is broken. Here he uses circumcision, spiritual circumcision, as the analogy. It is cut off. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead, and when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us, All our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, and which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, when he had, what, disarmed the rulers and the authorities. These are the entire armies of Satan. They are disarmed at the cross. And he made a public display of what? Of them, what is the antecedent for the third person plural pronoun them? The antecedent is the rulers and authorities, the demons. They were made a public display in the heavenlies. didn't happen on the earth, so we know it must have happened in the heavenlies as part of the angelic conflict. He made a public display of them having triumphed over them. The point of this is at salvation... There is a permanent victory accomplished by Jesus Christ on the cross so that believers who are united in Christ by virtue of baptism, by means of the Holy Spirit, which is identification with Christ, retroactive positional truth, that everything that is Christ's is ours. As a part of this, turn back one page to Colossians 1, 13 through 14. See, one of the greatest problems that we have is that people, Christians, are not taught what takes place at salvation. 
All of the things that take place at salvation are phenomenal. These are our eternal assets. There are 39 irrevocable assets that are given to us. These are spiritual realities. We're redeemed. We're justified. God is propitiated. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit, the sealing of the Holy Spirit. We're baptized by means of the Holy Spirit. We're identified with His death, burial, and resurrection. We are adopted into the royal family of God. We are made joint, we are made heirs of God. We are, um, adopted into the family and we are made royal priests. All of this takes place at the moment of salvation. We are sealed by means of God the Holy Spirit so that we cannot lose our salvation. All of this, when you look at the totality of what God does for each one of us at salvation, we cannot lose it. It's irreversible and it puts us in a position that ultimately means that we will be elevated above the angels. And God is not going to allow us to be desecrated by being, having our bodies invaded by a demon. Colossians 1, 13-14 says, For He delivered us from the domain of darkness. This means that whether you realized it or not, and you probably didn't, none of us did, there's so many things we don't know unless the Scripture tells us. That's what's so important about the sufficiency and the authority of Scripture. We do not have the information we need to make judgments about the spiritual life because we're ignorant of it. None of you knew this. The moment you were born, and that moment that you came out of the womb, you were made a prisoner. You were made a slave. You were made a citizen of Satan's kingdom. And he could do with you whatever he wanted to. If he wanted to send his demons to invade your body, he could. That's the kind of authority he had. And you didn't know that. You had no idea. You thought you were a pretty wonderful person. You did not know that you were a slave to Satan from the moment of birth. Same thing with your children. You mothers, every time you had a child that you gave birth to, you gave birth to a citizen of Satan's kingdom. Am I being sufficiently strong? Hope you get the point. We think we're so wonderful and nice and sweet, and those little babies are so cute. They're just little sin natures wrapped up in the flesh who are citizens of Satan's kingdom. That's where you have to start if you're going to build a biblical theology of parenthood, parents. That's why Scripture says that the foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction drives it far away. Your job as a parent is to train up that child, and your number one priority is to make sure they understand the gospel. And you need to be communicating that to them. That is your privilege as a parent to begin communicating that to them as early as they can start understanding language. Not when they can start speaking, but when they can start hearing it. And I've seen children as young as the age of two and a half express the desire to a mother that I want to go to heaven, can I accept Jesus as my Savior? So God consciousness and positive volition can come pretty early, especially if you create the right environment. Now, we're born into this kingdom, but at salvation, something phenomenal happens. Verse 13, He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. So now we're in the kingdom, and this is not the messianic kingdom. One of the issues we studied it, dealt with at the conference was this particular verse, and the term basileia, which is the Greek word for kingdom, has a variety of meanings. You have to look at the context and it just can have a general meaning of rule and reign. And just because you use the, a word is used as a technical sense in one passage doesn't mean it's technical everywhere. And this is not a technical term for the Messianic kingdom. It does not mean that Jesus inaugurated the kingdom at Pentecost. He did not. That is this awful teaching coming out of Dallas Seminary today called progressive dispensationalism. But the correct term, according to Dr. Ryrie's revisionist, dispensationalism and they want to say that we're in the kingdom well one of the problems go back to my chart here 
One of the problems that we've got is if we're in any form of the kingdom, then we can expect Joel 2 to be fulfilled. And the problem goes back to a concept that came out of Fuller Seminary. And I've always wondered if anything good could ever come out of Fuller Seminary. They threw out an inerrant doctrinal statement in the early 60s. Already not yet view of the kingdom, which sounds like a illogical contra- or a logical contradiction, that we're already in the kingdom, but it's not yet fully here. So we can expect the signs of the kingdom. Your young men will dream dreams, and your old men will see visions, and your daughters will prophesy, Joel 2. And that is the problem. And so what has happened is, I was in a conversation with one of the men who really started this whole perversion ten years ago, and I said to him, said, now, you guys believe in already not yet view the kingdom. Well, that's what Wimber teaches over there. They got it from George Ladd out at Fuller Seminary 30, 40 years ago. I said, what's going to keep you? Wimber's whole argument is if we're in the kingdom in any form, then we can experience the power sign gifts today. So what's going to keep you from becoming involved in that? Well, I just don't think that's a logical, logically consistent conclusion. I said, well, that's just because you're not attracted to that. But it is a logically consistent conclusion. And now I know of three men, one at Talbot, one at Moody, and one at Dallas Seminary, who have expressed the fact that they are open but not convinced to the continuation of the sign gifts because they have adopted this already not yet view of the kingdom. See, theology makes a difference in how you think and how you look at everything, and doctrine is important. So we have to realize, and part of this is that they think take passages like this, and they say, well, see right here, it says we're in the kingdom. But this is not the Davidic kingdom promised in the Old Testament. And in spite of their uh, permutations of illogical hermeneutics, we are Jesus is not sitting on the Davidic throne in heaven right now. So we are transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son. So in that position, we are not open to demon possession. Conclusion, since Satan and his hordes are defeated, and we are positionally removed from his jurisdiction... He can no longer have access to indwell a child of God. Point two. At salvation we are adopted into the family of God. Galatians 4. And as adu- we are adopted into the family of God as adult sons with all the privileges thereto. And this includes protection from demonic invasion. Point number three. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says that the body of the believer is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes our physical body. Notice in that passage, it talks, it's not talking about your soul or your spirit. It is talking about the physical body. And into your physical body, God the Holy Spirit makes that body a temple for the residence of God the Father and God the Son so that the entire Trinity dwells bodily inside every single believer. This protects us from any sort of invasion. John 4.4 4 says, He who is in you is mightier than he that is in the world. So when Satan or a demon comes up, knocks on your body, knock, 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 the illustration is like a house, and the Holy Spirit opens the door, there's no entrance. This is the same illustration the Lord Jesus Christ uses in Luke 11.24. So let's turn there. I warned you we're going to look at some of these passages. You ought to... I've suggested this before. You ought to daisy chain... in the, You know how in your Bibles you have a column with cross-references? When I do this, you ought to make notes in your margins so that you can follow this later. Luke 11.24 The context here is that the Jews have rejected the sign that Jesus has given them His messianic credentials of casting out demons. And they have said back in verse 15, 
after he cast out a demon, that he accused him of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Beelzebul is a title they gave to Satan. The ruler of the demons, it means Lord of the dung or Lord of the flies. It comes from an old Aramaic word. And they said that he casts out demons by the Lord of the dung. I kind of like the imagery that that does in terms of Satan. He casts out demons by the Lord of the dung, the ruler of the demons, and others to test him. And they were demanding a sign from heaven. But Jesus, verse 17, knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. So if Satan is also divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? I don't want to get into this whole analyzing this discourse, but the point is Satan, demon possession, casting out demons. And then Jesus comes down in verse 24 with this explanation. He says, when the unclean spirit, this is the pneumati akatharto, the demon, goes out of a man. Notice once again the demon possession terminology, in, out. Goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. That means there's no place for it to rest wherever it is, it's just a picture of barrenness. And not finding any, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Personal moral reformation, not spiritual regeneration, but someone who just cleaned up their life in terms of morality and they're doing a lot better now that they're no longer demon-possessed. They've gone to their, uh, their shrink and they've learned how to, um, you know, all the habits of efficient people or whatever it might be. And now they are, um, uh, in, have their life in order. And so the, the, the demon says, My, my, it's better than it was when I left. I'm going to go get my buddies and we're going to move in. Verse 26, Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. And of course the point is that when the believer has the Holy Spirit indwelling him, it's not a place that has simply been swept out and in order, it has been regenerated and there is it's not empty. It says he goes back and he comes and he finds the house empty in the parallel passage in Matthew. So because the house is not empty, but the Holy Spirit, God the Father, God the Son, indwell the believer, then because God is greater than Satan, he does not allow the Satan or the demon back in. Point number five, Jesus' continual intercession for the believer is recorded in John 17:15 in his high priestly prayer. There he prayed and continues to pray to the Father, I do not ask thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Jesus prays this continuously. He is our intercessor. John, 1 John chapter 5 tells us that if we pray anything according to His will, He hears us and He answers our prayer. And of course, since Jesus always prays consistently with the will and plan of the Father, then God always answers His prayer. So if Jesus is praying that we be kept from the evil one, that includes demon possession, God will answer that prayer and keep us from demon possession. Point number six, there is not one single biblical example of a believer being demon-possessed. There is not one single example. Examples that people usually go to are number one, Saul in the Old Testament. He's the only possible example in the Old Testament. And we looked at that and we saw that in 1 Samuel 16:14 and other verses in first chapter 16, that the Hebrew uses the preposition al, al, which means upon, and it uses the preposition al, which means to. That the demon came on him or to him, that is both, those are both external prepositions. It never uses this preposition, be, buh, which means in, or inside. You do not find that. And there's no, exor- there's no casting out of the demon. Exorcism was always a mystical practice, never auth- 
authorized by Jesus or the disciples. The word exorchizo uh, was only used of the Jewish mystics and their magical rites of casting out a demon. This is what religious people do to get rid of a demon. What Jesus and the disciples did was to ekbalo or cast out the demon. So Saul from the Old Testament is the only possible example. Then they go to the New Testament and they try to prove somehow that because uh, Judas was a disciple that he must have uh, been a believer and he was demon-possessed, so therefore believers can be demon-possessed. And of course, as we saw on Sunday morning, Judas was neither a believer that God uses unbelievers throughout history. He used, used Cyrus in the Old Testament. He used Nebuchadnezzar before he was a believer. He used Artaxerxes in the New Testament. He even had the unbelieving high priest Caiaphas utter a prophecy uh, that was absolutely true about the Lord Jesus Christ, that it was better for one man to die for the nation than that the entire nation suffered. And John made it a point to say, This he prophesied regarding Jesus. So John recognized under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit that Caiaphas was, as the high priest was truly prophesying. So God was uttering a true prophecy through an unbelieving high priest, Caiaphas. God can use unbelievers to accomplish His will and He had a plan and a purpose for Judas and we didn't get to it Sunday morning but even when God commissioned them and sent them out to heal and to cast out demons, etc. He sent them out two by two. So we're not really sure Judas ever got put in a position where he had to exercise that authority. He could have just ridden along and said, Oh, James, why don't you do it this time? I'm not sure I know how to do this. I don't know. The Scripture's not clear, and that's just an argument from silence, which is very weak, but it's not necessary to say that Judas actually did that. But I think he probably did. And as such, he is the antitype of all those the Scripture says will cast out demons in Jesus' name and heal in Jesus' name. And at the final judgment, they will come to the Lord and say, Lord, Lord, but I, I cast out demons in Your name and I heal people in Your name and I did all kinds of miracles in Your name. And Jesus will say, Depart from Me because I never knew You. So God in His sovereignty can include and does include unbelievers to accomplish His purposes when He deems it necessary. Point number six, or seven. Point number six was there are no biblical examples. Saul wasn't demon-possessed. Judas wasn't demon, was, was not a believer. Ananias and Sapphira were believers, but they weren't demon-possessed. Satan simply put the thought, and we have studied how Satan can influence our thinking, put the thought into their mind. So uh, there's no argument anywhere from the Scriptures of a believer being demon-possessed. Point number seven, the sufficiency of Scripture indicates only that God has given us all we need to know related to the spiritual life. That's the first point of point six. Scripture says that God has given us all we need to know. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. So there's no category that's excluded. If the epistles are written so that believers can know everything they need to know for the spiritual life, and the epistles never mention demon possession and how to get rid of a demon who's possessing a believer... The only conclusion we can draw from it, it's not an argument from silence in the classic sense of that argument. It is a statement that if God says, I've told you everything you need to know and God doesn't mention it, then we don't need to know it because it's not an issue. Let me say that again. If God says He's told us everything and He hasn't mentioned it, then it's not important, it's irrelevant. Listen to the statistics. The Greek word for demon, daimonion, and its related words, all the other words used to speak about demons, are used 77 times in the New Testament. 67 times the word is found in the four Gospels. Three times in Revelation. And seven times in the Epistles. There's a law of interpretation called proportion. Where is the emphasis in the Scriptures? 
It's at the time when Christ came on the earth, when the Messiah came, in the, in the focal point of all the angelic conflict, he stirred all the demons up. But it's not an issue. A, a similar time is, uh, proportion is found in the 42 times that evil and unclean spirits is used. It's used 23 times in the Gospels, 13 times in Acts, 3 times in the Epistles, and 3 times in Revelation. So 87% of the 119 references to demons in the New Testament occur in the historical section. And there's very little mentioned about demons in the sections designed to teach believers about the spiritual life. Because the issue is not to be concerned about, is Satan attacking me or is a demon attacking me? But what is the provision of God? Because whether the problem is inside from the sin nature, externally through the Satan's cosmic system, or through demons, the solution is always the same. Learn doctrine, assimilate doctrine, apply doctrine. That's what it means to resist the devil. In 2 Timothy 3.16, a passage we're familiar with, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, breathed out by God, and is profitable for doctrine, proof for correction, for instruction, and my righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for what? For every good work. And then a final passage to emphasize this exclusivity of Scripture is found in, in the armor passage, which we'll get to next week in Ephesians 6. In Ephesians chapter 6, we are told that uh, in verse Sixteen. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, which is the exercise of the faith rest drill. This isn't salvation faith. Taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish. Faith rest drill, 2 Corinthians 5.7. We walk by means of faith and not by sight. We don't base our theology on experience. We don't base our th- come to theological conclusions like some of these men do, on the basis of the preponderance of anecdotal evidence. They have great stories of the demon-possessed people and everything they did in their offices. They have files and files of case studies. But what the Scripture says is that if we walk by faith and not by sight, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to distinguish 98% of the flaming missiles of the evil one. Is that what it says? No, it's not. It says, by the shield of faith, which is the operation of trusting the promises of God. This isn't faith in faith. It's not faith in feeling. It's not faith in intuition. It's not faith in emotion. It's not faith in experience. It's not faith in what happened in your office and what you saw with your own eyes. It is faith in what the Word of God says. You will be able to extinguish all of the flaming missiles of the evil one. Every single one, it doesn't matter what it is, it doesn't matter how large it is, it doesn't matter the caliber, it doesn't matter the frequency, it doesn't matter the temperature, it doesn't matter how overwhelming it may appear. We have to say with David, the battle is the Lord's and take up a defensive posture behind the armor of God and the problem-solving devices and the stress busters and then the Lord takes over. In 1866, on December 21st, a phenomenon occurred going to happen again next week. Some of you have been notified of this with the internet. I'm going to tell you the rest of the story. December 21st, 1866, was a time when there was a lot of conflict along the American frontier. The conclusion of the war, a lot of settlers were headed west. They were going up through Wyoming. Here's Wyoming going up along what was called the Bozeman Trail in Montana. The Sioux Indians under Red Cloud had achieved a tremendous alliance and they had put together a number of subgroups of Sioux, Cheyenne, and Arapaho and they were beginning to attack all of the um, uh, people that were settlers coming along the the uh, Bozeman Trail. So they built a number of forts, and up here they built a fort called Fort Phil Kearney. The commanding officer's name was Lieutenant Colonel Carrington. He had a young, hot-shot lieutenant or captain by the name of... of uh, uh, name slipped Fort... Uh, 
not Phil Kearney, Fort Fetterman. Uh, uh, now, what happened then, what's going to happen in two weeks, is that here's the earth, shifting subjects. I'll come back to it. It all ties together. Here's the moon going around the earth. The moon has a somewhat elliptical orbit. At certain stages, it is at its closest point, its apogee, closest point to the earth. Now, as the earth in its turn makes its rotation around the sun, it also has an elliptical orbit around the sun. What will happen on, at dusk on December 22nd hasn't happened since December 22nd, 1866. And that is that the moon will be at, its clo- at a full moon on the solstice. It will be at its closest point to the earth, so it's going to appear about 15 to 18% larger than the rest of the time. And because the moon is closest to the sun it will be reflecting about 8 or 9% more sunlight than it normally does. Which means it's going to be the brightest night you will ever, if it's clear, it will be the brightest night we will ever see in our lives, and it happens only once every 130 years. And it was under that moon that the Sioux really raised Cain on the frontier. But earlier that day, on December 21st, We have to hear the rest of the story. The Sioux were out here. There's a couple of ridge lines out here. And the Sioux were hidden. They were hidden from the eyes of the observers in the defensive posture in the fort. See, we are to take up a defensive posture in resisting the devil. Anthistemi is the Greek word. It's a military term. And it means to take up a defensive posture to stand firm behind your protection. Well... Carrington was running out of supplies and he needed to send a a woodcutting crew out and they had to have a small detail to protect them when they went up to this ridge to cut firewood and to cut cut down the trees. So he 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 sent out a detail of, of seven men, but Fetterman said, no, no, let me go. And he said, okay, but here are your orders. If you see any Indians, only engage them if they attack. Otherwise, ignore them and just take care of the mission to cut the firewood and get back into the fort. In other words, he's giving marching orders of a defensive position. But Fetterman's like all these deliverance ministry people. They want to engage the enemy in offensive action. Now, what happened was a young war chief by the name of Crazy Horse put together a plan where he took a couple of dozen Indians out here, and they began to fight a little skirmish action with the woodcutters. Fetterman thought that he knew everything he knew on the basis of what he could see in front of him. Experiential, empirical data. There's only about 20 Indians out there. We can handle them. He didn't see what was behind the trees all along the other ridge over here. So these Indians began to act as a decoy, and they began to fade back. And the more they faded back, the more confident Fetterman became. And he took his team and the woodcutters, and they continued to press these in. They just kept falling back and falling back until they went over this ridge. And when they went over that ridge, they dispersed. And when Fetterman and his party came over that ridge line, they were in the middle of 2,500 Sioux, Arapaho, and Cheyenne warriors. And... If there were any believers that day, they were absent from the body and face to face with the Lord. Because they had disobeyed their orders, they were operating on an offensive maneuver in an arena where they had no empirical data, and they disobeyed the orders from the commanding officer, which was to stand firm. This is exactly what happens in spiritual warfare. Believers who get engaged in deliverance ministries and get out there and think they can cast out demons and all of this other stuff that has no biblical authorization whatsoever are way out here 
totally exposed on the flank and they are going to destroy their spiritual lives. They won't lose their salvation, but they get, are going to get destroyed in their spiritual life because when you're in carnality, disobedience to God's Word, then we're not in the fortress of the stress busters. We're not in God's protective plan. We are not using the armor of God and we are going to be defeated spiritually over and over and over again. So now you know, when you see that bright light next Tuesday night, you know the rest of the story with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for the clarity of Your Word that there's so much that goes on, especially in the heavenlies, that we're completely ignorant of. We have no ability to sense the information that's there to learn about it other than what You have told us. We thank You for the clarity of Your Word and how You have spelled these things out for us and for our protection. We thank You for all that Jesus Christ did on the cross for us, that He has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and we are in His kingdom. And we are no longer slaves to our sin nature, no longer slaves to Satan, but we have been given a phenomenal spiritual life. And one day soon, at any moment, the Scripture says, He will return for us and we look forward with anticipation to that time. And Father, now we pray that you would continue to remind us of the things we studied and challenge us with them. In Christ's name, amen.